From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Like, a winter kill cover crop is like the most beautiful thing because it's going to do all the work for you, basically, and get you where you need to. This week on our show, we speak with the IU campus farm manager, Aaron Carmen Sweeney, about regenerative agriculture practices and how they come in handy when you start a farm on land without any topsoil. Harvest Public Media has a story about President-elect Joe Biden's choice for Secretary of Agriculture, and we have some recipes suitable for the holiday season. Stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Let's start with Earth Eats News with Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. As farmers close out the year, many will be turning some attention to signing up for safety net programs. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer reports on the changing role of federal payments. In the 2014 Farm Bill, Congress created the Agricultural Risk Coverage and Price Loss Coverage programs to replace a safety net system that simply cut farmers a check each year. Iowa State Extension Farm Management Specialist Steve Johnson says there was little expectation in 2014 that farmers would see large payments from ad hoc programs. But this year, the combination of trade bailout money and coronavirus relief has pushed farm income higher than it's been since 2013. That is the biggest surprise. I think Congress intended to sunset the direct payments creating ARC PLC. And then here comes the ad hoc payments, and now ARC PLC still exists, and it'll exist for three more years. Farmers can sign up for ARC or PLC through March, but Johnson advises them to use crop insurance as their main risk management tool. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. A new bill called the Justice for Black Farmers Act aims to reverse decades of discriminatory practices by the USDA. The bill was brought forward by Senators Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Elizabeth Warren. In the last 100 years, the number of black farmers in America has decreased from 17% of all producers to less than 2%. For decades, black farmers have reported being denied access to loans from the USDA or facing a much longer approval process than their white counterparts. The act aims to restore land lost by black farmers by providing land grants of up to 160 acres to existing and aspiring black farmers. It would also create farming and ranching educational programs for young adults from socially disadvantaged communities. Kamal Bell, CEO of Sankofa Farms, a family farm and agricultural academy in North Carolina, told ABC News that he sees the bill as a step in the right direction. However, he says, the education aspect of the bill should focus on more modern business and farming practices. 
The act does have the support of the National Black Farmers Association, the USDA Coalition of Minority Employees, the National Farmers Union, and over 100 other organizations. While moving the bill through Congress will be an uphill task, Senator Booker told Mother Jones he thinks there is growing momentum for addressing the legacy of discrimination in the U.S. Thanks to Toby Foster and Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. When schools closed and businesses began to shut down due to COVID-19, organizations and individuals stepped up to help people who may have suddenly lost income or otherwise needed assistance. On the campus of Indiana University, the IU Food Institute suspected that there were people in the IU community who might need help with meals. We were thinking about students who had supported themselves with jobs, maybe in the service industry, and everything was closed. All the restaurants were closed. And, you know, what kind of situation were they, were they facing? The director of the IU Food Institute saw an opportunity to help. Carl Ipsen, I'm a professor of history at IU Bloomington and the director of the IU Food Institute. So he started a conversation with the executive director of IU Dining. My name is Rahul Srivastav. In the conversation, it, it emerged, the IU dining staff was still employed, but obviously feeding many fewer people because the dining halls were, for the most part, closed. Well, we have the cooks, but we don't have the ingredients. We don't have the, the food for them to cook. So we need to find a way to get that. So Carl appealed to a list of people associated with the IU Food Institute and sent out a call for donations. Using the Food Institute and the contacts we have there and sort of with the foundation, doing some fundraising among alumni and... They quickly raised the funding they needed to get started and spread the word about the emergency meal project. I think it was four days that we pulled this off. We talked about it on Thursday. By Monday morning, we were serving our first meals. David and Ashley were key in this area. They started developing menus based off locally provided foods from the IU farm and um, the local ingredient providers that we have. Along with the chefs led by Ashley Massey and David Talent, we had a good systems team that took this on, prepared a form that students could order these meals from, put in their preferences and allergies. Ashley Massey, she had the whole form laid out, how it transfers to a spreadsheet, who's on the delivery piece of it, who's coming and picking it up. As you saw, a couple of cars just drove by here picking it up. She had all that organized. They set up a system, an online ordering process, a time and a place for meal pickups, and a delivery process for those who can't make it to the pickup spot. And through the uh, Food Institute intern and the Campus Kitchen intern, we have been able to, to deliver meals to people who are, for whatever reason, whether they were quarantined or didn't have transportation or maybe even were sick, um, couldn't, couldn't make it here. So we've been doing deliveries every day as well. And it worked out. By the 12th week in early July, they had provided more than 3,500 meals, and they had their biggest day that week, 101 meals in one day. Of course, I wanted to know about the meals themselves. 
What kind of food were they serving? Today there was a vegan pasta uh, with a great vegetable sauce and sauteed snap peas which are in season right now. There is a full meal, it's highly nutritious. There's a salad, there's an entree and very well portioned. It can be stretched out of lunch to a snack or even dinner at times. The, the food's been amazing actually. And um, yesterday, just yesterday there was a stir fried rice. And I'm vegan so I'm gonna give you the vegan description. So it, it was stir fried rice with a lot of vegetables in it and it was absolutely delicious. And uh, I know the non-vegans got pot stickers, made from scratch over here. So uh, the, the chefs are getting, it's also very good for our staff, you know, they're getting, it's, you know, in this break, when you're cooking, you need, it's a momentum thing, you know, you keep going with it. And right now they're cooking and they're, they're innovating more and more. And uh, so uh, it, it has been a lot of, uh, it has been a lot of fun with them, with the meal. Carl and Rahul are brainstorming and working with the administration on more stable and sustainable ways to address food insecurity on campus. We first shared this story in the late summer. The program was suspended during the fall academic semester since regular meal programs were in place. The Campus Emergency Meals Program is back for the long winter break. Find more information at eartheats.org. Tom Vilsack served as the Secretary of Agriculture during all eight years of the Obama administration. President-elect Joe Biden is looking to tap into that experience by picking him to return to the job. But as Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports, Midwest farmers and activists from both sides of the political spectrum have some major concerns. Tom Vilsack isn't a farmer. He's a lawyer who grew up in Pennsylvania and moved to his wife's hometown in Iowa in the 1970s. He rose through the political ranks to become governor of the state and then went on to serve as secretary of agriculture. Keith Bockelman is a political science professor at Western Illinois University. He says Vilsack is a moderate and a safe choice. It looks like it's kind of um, somebody that Biden was comfortable with, clearly. And so in some ways, I think that this is kind of a compromise choice a compromise that longtime Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa is supporting. In August of 2019, Vilsack joined Grassley at an Iowa dairy to promote the new North American trade deal. Grassley said Vilsack is someone he can work with. When everybody thinks everything in Washington is uh, partisan and there's an opportunity to stress bipartisanship and with somebody of uh, Governor Vilsack's background, particularly as Secretary of Agriculture for eight years, it brings credibility to the chance that this is something that we can get done. But rank-and-file farmers of differing political persuasions don't see Vilsack that way. Larry Saylor is a semi-retired farmer who grows corn and soybeans on 200 acres in northern Iowa. Saylor voted for Trump and says he doesn't trust Vilsack because of his history of increasing government regulation on farmers. He says an example was Vilsack's support of more stringent rules to enforce the Clean Water Act. Those types of regulations don't really do anything to improve conservation, the quality of water or anything. So to me, it's just the regulations that are a drag on the economy, on farmers, basically on anything. Even farmers that voted for Biden aren't thrilled with the choice. 
Darwin Brantledge has 100 head of cattle and cornfields on his 1,200-acre farm in western Missouri. He says he expected more from Biden and that Vilsack is too cozy with corporate agriculture and allowed more consolidation in crop and livestock production, shutting out small farmers. He had uh, listening sessions where he wanted to listen to farmers, but, you know, they more or less turned into his promotion towards uh, more corporate control. Adding fuel to that criticism is Vilsack taking a job leading the U.S. Dairy Export Council after leaving Obama's cabinet. That trade group is seen as an ally to large producers. Another criticism of Vilsack is his lack of action to help black farmers. Jeanette Mott-Oxford is the director of policy at Empower Missouri, a food, shelter, and justice advocacy group. She says helping minority farmers is an issue that has gone unaddressed for too long. There wasn't much improvement uh, on that front uh, under Vilsack, and we we would hope that uh, the Biden administration would commit to finally uh, making things right for black farmers. Mott Oxford says Vilsack was strong on the nutrition and food aid side of the USDA's mission, with increases to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, especially during times of recession. But more left-leaning groups wanted someone even more dedicated to that cause and less focused on the business of farming. But political scientist Keith Bockelman says agriculture is an area where the Biden administration may need to seek middle ground and compromise more than pushing an ideological agenda. He says Vilsack, as a compromise candidate, can forge bipartisan agreements. It also becomes a matter of how effectively he can lobby Congress. When he was appointed the first time under President Obama, he was unanimously supported in the Senate, so I think he has some political capital in Congress. But first, Vilsack will have to be approved by a very divided and very partisan Senate. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. After a short break, we'll visit a farm on the campus of Indiana University. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. One of the sources for food for the Campus Emergency Meal Program over the summer, and for IU dining in general, is the IU Campus Farm. Early in the fall, I visited the farm and spoke with the farm manager, Aaron Carmen Sweeney. We are walking around the IU Campus Farm, which is at the Hinkle Garden Farmstead. The farm is located on 10th Street, west of the bypass in Bloomington. They focus on fruit and vegetable production and distribute the harvest to students through IU Dining Services, to the general public through farm stands, and to those in need of food assistance through donations to Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Aaron Carmen Sweeney grew up on an organic farm, but truly discovered his passion for sustainable food systems after he left home. I went off to college, and the summer reading that they made my entire freshman class do was Omnivore's Dilemma. And I was like, wow, you know, the, uh, the world is trying to teach me that the way I've been raised and grown up is, 
a, a good and important way to be producing our food and the way we should be producing our food. Got more interested in it from like a different perspective. It was never like an academic thing for me growing up. It was just like, this is what we do. And then I started to study and realize all of the problems with the larger industrial food system. Aaron has a degree in geography and environmental resources and loads of experience in growing food and sharing farming skills with others. He's been running the farm from the beginning, and it's a good fit. With about five acres for crop production, the farm hosts four high tunnels and several large open air fields for growing specialty crops. Aaron gave me a tour of the farm at peak growing season, starting with the first area they planted. Our main growing area for 2018, 2019, and this year, because this is the only part of the property where the soil wasn't stripped all the topsoil wasn't stripped away. The farm faced a huge challenge when they first broke ground in 2017 due to the condition of the land itself. At some point, one of the heirs of the Garten estate was looking into developing the site for condos or apartments and sold off the topsoil. I didn't even know that was a thing that you can sell topsoil. Oh yeah, people buy topsoil all, I mean, you can go to Speedway and buy topsoil and it's just, you know, soil that they stripped off of land somewhere because they wanted to flatten it. Any, anytime, if you're anywhere near a building, the topsoil that you're dealing with is very likely not the native topsoil. Okay, good to know. Earlier, I said the farm was dedicated to growing specialty crops. What that basically means is fruits and vegetables, as opposed to corn and soybeans, which are the typical Indiana crop crops. Of beans, there's some kabucha squash, butternut squash, more beans for the fall. This is our zucchini that we're just starting to pick, so it's kind of the timing has worked out where like that stuff is fading and this stuff is just coming on. We've got a big row of a couple different colors of like pink and yellow tomatoes, more beans, some peppers, there goes a rabbit, <laughs> and some cherry tomatoes. And then this is our first year growing sweet potatoes. In spite of the land being stripped down to hard pan clay, they've managed to build up the soil through an approach referred to as regenerative agriculture. This includes methods such as winter kill cover cropping. Cover crops are great for a lot of reasons, which, which people can look into, but basically just, just having living roots in the soil. And then uh, what I like to do is, is have a nice mixture of different plants, not just a single thing, because the, the diversity basically, when it dies, it can compost in place and provide those nutrients. And for a couple of reasons, that's a lot cheaper than buying compost. And you know, people say, well, why don't you just make your own compost? Well, on the scale that I'm at, I would need like industrial quantities of compost and huge equipment to turn. So. A cover crop can kind of create that biomass, that organic matter, in place. And then the nice thing about a winter-killed one is that terminating it is not a problem. It's going to die. So it's, you know, it's a warm season crop, like a buckwheat. This will probably be like sorghum sudan grass, sun hemp, and buckwheat, which are all going to die at the very first frost. And then they'll just be able to break down and be a mulch all winter. So they'll protect the soil. And then by the time the spring comes around, almost all that material has fully like broken down into the soil. You know, you might rake aside a little bit, but you can just get right into the soil and it's ready to go and it's added some nutrients. And if you have a legume in there, like in our case, the sun hemp, that's gonna have some nitrogen for you. So that's kind of our main fertility program because compost is just expensive and not always attainable. And 
obviously we're using organic methods, so we're not bringing in like ammonium nitrate or anything like that. Because we use cover crops and the, the way we approach farming, we call it regenerative agriculture. Trying to build life in the soil with, you know, all of, all of these different roots in the soil that attract different various microbes and fungi relationships. Like a winter killed cover crop is like the most beautiful thing because it's going to do all the work for you, basically, and get you where you need to. Some areas of the campus farm are used for research and experimentation as sort of a living laboratory for classes at IU. Textile artist and IU professor Roland Rickles is growing indigo on the campus farm for projects in natural dyeing. Professor James Farmer, who oversees the campus farm, brings his students out for hands-on learning and sustainable agriculture. And biology professor Heather Reynolds is conducting a trial on the use of living mulch. So this, like the living mulch of the clover is here. And she has a map of it so she could tell me better. But, and I think this one's like a... Hairy vetch or something. This one has hairy vetch and, yeah, and rye that got mowed down. Then there's a straw one. And this one is a leaf mulch, strip mulch. So there's these different mulching approaches. They're all no-till which is most effective and she did this trial on a, a larger scale trial it took up like this whole plot last year and she did it on two other farms and universally it seemed I think to find that the straw mulch was the most effective and that was that was pretty much the farmer control of like okay what would you normally do and so so the living mulches all the all the kind of more experimental stuff was found to be less effective um, but uh, there might be reasons to tweak it and try something else, yeah. try something slightly different. And maybe if it works, but isn't the, the most effective, but right. it still works, still then maybe it's still worth worth trying, trying out. Yeah. yeah, totally. So yeah, this this part over here looks more traditional with the straw. Right, right. Effective, but one of the agricultural experiments on the farm is managed by Aaron and the other employees of the farm. Basically, the, we're comparing the open field to the movable high tunnel to the permanent high tunnel and seeing just how they perform. We're growing the same crops. We've got tomatoes and peppers in each of these spots for the summer anyway. A lot of people want to grow tomatoes in their tunnels because it's just a, a highly profitable crop and it's a good space to grow that. So they'll build a tunnel and then they'll want to do that year after year. And it's like, well, okay, that's not great for the soil. With organic growing methods, it's not great for the soil to plant the same crop in the same place year after year because you can end up harboring pests and diseases in the soil that affect that particular crop. Ideally, you rotate your crops so that one piece of land would have, say, tomatoes one year, then green beans the next year, then carrots the following year, and then you could return to tomatoes. Different types of crops deplete the soil of or supply the soil with particular nutrients as well. But by having a movable tunnel, I can move my tunnel and be growing tomatoes in it again next year on a new patch of ground that didn't have tomatoes in it last year. And grow something else where the and, high tunnel was. Yeah, exactly. And it encourages you, again, those cover crops. A lot of people don't ever plant cover crops in their tunnels because you want to do you know, your tomatoes in the summer, and then you do your leafy greens in the fall and winter, and you kind of always have it in some kind of cash crop, because uh, it's too valuable a space to not do something like that. Um, but with being able to move the tunnel, then you have outdoor space where you can, you know, throw in a cover crop and kind of uh, get a chance to revitalize that soil. Okay, um, so you're calling these movable tunnels, but to me, they look huge and 
really hard to move. So, so what? This is all, there's a rail here and this is a track. There's a wheel on the rail and then everything is just anchored in. So these cables connect it to the rail and then there's earth anchors there. But all that stuff comes right off. And then the walls, the, the walls flip right up. And then I, we've moved this with as few as four people. Just push it down the track. You know, you get a little grease on the ball bearings on the wheels and yeah, it runs right along. So. So yeah, these building size structures, the size of say a double wide trailer. They're basically an arched metal frame covered with translucent plastic sheeting. They're, they're on tracks. You move them by rolling them on the tracks. And we planted lettuces and greens. And once that stuff was established and looking good, we moved it along so that we could go ahead and get our tomatoes planted and, and stuff for the summer. And you've got carrots galore right now, it yeah, looks like. Yeah, replaced that with carrots, yep. And then all, all the first plot where it was, that's where it was over the winter, that's now all in a cover crop. Oh, so there's like three sections. There's total. three sections. Yep, yep, and we just oh, that's so great. Yeah, it's it's, Love it. it's fun. I really couldn't get over the brilliance of the system. It allows the grower to continuously use the covered structure season after season, while rotating the crops for optimum soil health. This kind of research on the campus farm involves a lot of record keeping and documentation. Just the recording of the data from the different tomato plots is about 25% of the labor of harvesting the tomatoes, right? So there'll be like three people harvesting tomatoes and then one person like weighing them and being like, okay, this is from that plot, this is from that plot, and put into a spreadsheet. Record keeping is a big part of it, and that's, you know, an aspect of research, an aspect of food safety, and just like good farm management, and knowing knowing what amendments went down where, and knowing what was planted where, and, and keeping track of everything. That was Aaron Carmen Sweeney of the IU Campus Farm. You can find more about the farm on our website, eartheats.org. At our house, we have an eclectic collection of mugs. And lately I've noticed that my relationship with them is rather involved. We have ones that were handcrafted by my friend Libby, one from the dentist office in Terre Haute where my son had dental work done at age one and a half. There's the kitten mug with a picture of a kitten on the front and a small circle of the kitten image on the inside so you never lose sight of the kitten, even when taking a drink. There's the mug from Wanzik Construction from way back in the days when I worked in the building trades. That's the one I pick up when I've got a serious workday ahead and I need to buckle down and power through. The kitten one is for days when I need to be nice to myself. The one from a local law office has a nice weight to it. It feels good in my hand and it's a great choice for day-to-day -day getting stuff done. The handcrafted ones are luxurious and comforting at once. 
My partner often uses the dentist one since we don't care if it gets tea stains. There's one with an elegant Sohio logo on it. It's a narrow mug that fits perfectly in the car cup holder. But I hesitate to take it out of the house for fear of breaking it. It is a favorite. The plain dark blue one can travel. It's replaceable. Same with the one from the hub. I have a second one stashed away. But the best mug in the world is one that my former co-workers had custom made for me that says, I have lots of ideas. It makes me feel seen and known and loved. I miss that one. It's been hanging out at the office without me for nine months. Maybe I should go by and pick it up. Anyway, the point is, mugs can be special. We can get attached to ordinary objects. If you're looking for a new mug to enter your life, maybe you could request one from WFIU as a thank you gift when you make your donation. Public Radio always has good mugs. Your WFIU mug could be the one you use when you're feeling generous, community-minded, proud of yourself, or well-informed. There's still time to make a gift before the end of the year to take advantage of the CARES Act tax benefits. You can pledge your support now by going to wfiu.org donate. And thank you. Holiday baking is a tradition in my family. My mom always baked several kinds of cookies and prepared a batch of peanut brittle before Christmas. Then we'd arrange them on gift plates for neighbors and friends. I've carried on the tradition, adding savory roasted nuts and granola to the mix of sweets. Since I'm making many different goodies in a short time span, I appreciate a recipe that comes together quickly. This chocolate truffle recipe fits the bill and comes from another family member, my brother-in-law, Eric Pearson. Eric lives in Paintlet, Kentucky, near Berea. He teaches philosophy at Berea College. Eric is a great cook. He's always exploring new recipes and cookbooks. He's known for hosting elaborate dinner parties, and he's dabbled in molecular gastronomy with his son, Clem. But today he's sharing something decidedly uncomplicated. The recipe is called Daily Dose Extra Strength Truffles. Here's Eric. I've got uh, a couple tablespoons of cold butter here that I want to chop up into little pieces. We need eight ounces of chocolate, and typically I get it in, uh, this is dark chocolate, I usually get it in bars and chop it up. But today I have it in handy uh, dark chocolate chunks, 72% already uh, chopped up. Now, you can use any chocolate you want, any dark chocolate you want. And the only other thing we're going to use is cream. And then at the end, we're going to dust it with cocoa powder. So the first thing I'm going to do is put 10 ounces of my chocolate chunks into a bowl. And then add the butter. 
And now we take a couple cup of cream out of the uh, refrigerator. Here it is. And we're going to put that on a small pot on the stove over low heat. We're going to heat it up, but of course you don't want it to boil just to where it, it gets steam coming off it. If anybody has warmed up cream on the range top, you know that uh, you probably want to stir it pretty much constantly. If you don't do that, a film forms on the top of the cream, which doesn't help anything. And this will take a few minutes. So where does this recipe come from? I found this recipe just in the food section of a local newspaper in the Lexington, Kentucky Herald Leader. And I don't think that the author of that credited to anywhere else. The author um, said that this was the, the best thing for the hassled mother of two. Uh -huh. So recommended them as a medical intervention in the middle of the day. So the cream is just heating until we see the steam coming off of it? Exactly right. And that's just hot enough to melt the chocolate and the butter. And there's the, there's the steam. So turn off the burner and pour the cream over the chocolate and butter. Take a whisk and just whisk until all of that is melted into one mass. I've whisked that until it is smooth, and that's all. And now I'm going to pour it into a prepared loaf pan. I like a loaf pan with as straight a sides as you can get. And then you want a piece of plastic wrap, large enough so there's be enough to uh, go over the tops. Eric lines the loaf pan with the plastic wrap. And now I am pouring the melted chocolate mixture into the prepared loaf pan. If you can't get it all out, there's enough for the kids to lick the bowl. Now fold over the excess plastic wrap and we will refrigerate until set several hours. Before you take the set chocolate mixture out of the fridge, dust a cutting board with a generous amount of cocoa powder. So the uh, truffles have been in the refrigerator for about eight hours. So take them out with the plastic in one big uh, piece, unwrap the plastic. And place your slab of chocolatey goodness onto the layer of cocoa powder on your cutting board. Now we're going to cut these into uh, 32 pieces, but first we want to top it with the cocoa powder and smooth it out all over it. And when we cut it up, we're going to have cocoa powder on. We want to powder all six sides of each cube. I recommend making one cut down the center and then dividing each half into four equal pieces. So you end up with 32 more or less evenly sized cubes. These are pretty big truffles, so you could cut them smaller if you like. And now what you do, you pick each one up and you dust it in the remaining uh, cocoa powder and then you put them back in the loaf pan in layers. I use wax paper between the layers. You'll want to keep these in the fridge until you're ready to serve them. They'll get too soft at room temperature. I can't get over how simple these are to make and how elegant they end up looking with that matte dusting of cocoa powder. And these truffles are delicious with a deep flavor and creamy texture and definitely not too sweet. 
They're perfect. Well, thank you very much, Eric. You are welcome. Of course, you'll find this recipe and many others on our website, eartheats.org. Make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast. It's the same great stories in your podcast feed. Just search for Earth Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. We love to hear from you and it helps other people find us. Much of my holiday baking traditions involve sweets, cookies and candy mostly. But for years, I've also included a granola recipe, and it's always a big hit. This is a very simple granola recipe. You can customize it to your taste. It makes a great gift around the holidays. Start by preheating your oven to 250 while you mix up your ingredients. The first ingredient is oats, rolled oats, and you definitely want the old-fashioned. You do not want to get the quick oats. You can also make this a gluten-free granola by making sure that the oats you purchase are 100% gluten-free. Some oats are not. So you want eight cups of rolled oats. The next ingredient is chopped nuts. You're going to want a cup of chopped nuts, and it can be whatever nuts you prefer. I Today I'm making it with pecan, but I often do it with almonds. And I, this is a rough chop. I really like to have nice big pieces of nuts in my granola. And you're going to want one cup of chopped nuts. And then you just want to mix those nuts in with the rolled oats. Now I mix up my oats and my nuts in one big baking sheet. Uh, sort of a roasting pan kind of thing. It's just a big metal pan. I mix it all up in there so that I don't even have to dirty a bowl. And then we're going to mix up the oil and the maple syrup. So it's one half cup of maple syrup and one half cup of oil. I'm using a sunflower oil. I mix this all up in one two cup measuring cup and then two or three generous squirts of honey and then one half teaspoon of salt. This is also the time where you can add other seasonings if you prefer. Some people really like cinnamon or nutmeg or cloves or allspice or any kind of spices that you think would be interesting or desirable in your granola. You're gonna mix up that oil and syrup together in the honey and get it really thoroughly mixed and then you're gonna pour that directly over the oats and the nuts. You want the syrup and the oil mixture to fully coat all of the oats and the nuts. Once the oats and the nuts are fully coated and the 
syrup and oil mixture. Then it's ready to go into the oven. You're going to want to kind of shake it down to an even layer and then put it in the oven. And once you get your pan in the oven, set your timer for 15 minutes. And once your 15 minutes are up, you're going to take it out and stir it. Put it back in the oven for another 15 minutes. Do that until it's a nice golden brown. And once your granola turns a deep golden brown, should be done in about hour, hour and 15 minutes. And before it cools, you want to add your dried fruit if you're going to be adding any. So that would be your raisins or your currants or you can use dried cranberries. You could use chopped apricots, figs, whatever you prefer. I'll be using dried cranberries and I think even the cranberries are a little bit too big. So I usually chop them up a little bit before I add them. And just mix the dried fruit into the hot granola and you're done. Just let it cool and you can store it in jars or airtight containers. Fill up a pint jar, put a ribbon on it, and it's a great holiday gift. Hopefully there's enough left for you. I enjoy this granola for breakfast with a dollop of plain yogurt and fresh berries or homemade jam. The recipe is on our website, eartheats.org. And if you are a visual learner, you can watch a video of me making this simple recipe in my home kitchen. It's on the Earth Eats YouTube channel. Find us by searching for Earth Eats on YouTube. You'll find at least one cookie recipe there as well. And while you're there, you might as well subscribe. In this next story, we'll get a taste of the Oregon coast, courtesy of producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell. It features the voices of commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs. It was recorded in August 2019. O'Connell conducted the original research for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Hoppy microbrews, Tillamook cheddar, Pinot Noir, these are a few of Oregon's favorite flavors. But there's also something in the water. What we have out here in our ocean is very special. We have these cold water fish. Salmon, tuna, halibut. They have high oil content, they're big fish, they're fatty and they just taste awesome compared to skinny little tropical fish, <laughs> in my opinion and in many people's opinions. It takes hard work to bring fish and seafood to the plate. Laura Anderson, Amber Novelli, and Terry Hartill are all small-scale seafood entrepreneurs. Laura owns Local Ocean, an upscale restaurant and market on Yakina Bay in Newport just across the street fishing boats dock at Pier 5. Some of these boats are her direct suppliers. We have relationships with over 50 different fishermen to get the catch required to feed on a day like today in the summer in August. We might feed 900 meals today. Amber and her husband fished from two boats, the Midnight and the Aquarius. 
They bring their catch directly to customers at their small floating seafood market in Florence. And that's one of the biggest things is when people come to the coast, they're looking for fresh fish. They're not looking for something that is frozen, that could be farmed, that could be anything. You're like, you want, you want what is caught here. In the town of Seaside, there's a giant glowing neon crab. That sign marks Belbuie, where Terry oversees one of the coast's few remaining seafood canneries. There was all kinds of canneries back in the 1800s. There was like 20 canneries on the river. Now there's, if you don't home can yourself in your own kitchen, your own product, where else do you get it? You have to come to people like us. Fishing, canning, running a restaurant, these are all pretty distinct business ventures. But these three entrepreneurs all have roots in seafood. Yes, I was born and raised in this area. I've been in the seafood business since 1966 in some capacity. My husband and I are both from Monterey, California. We had a huge squid population down there. The Italians, they all... They have huge fishing um, industries down there. A lot of old school families. I grew up in Westport, Washington. It's a very small fishing community. Probably had a population of less than 1,500 people. Most of them were fishermen or fishing families. And yeah, my dad was a commercial fisherman. Keeping these family and community legacies going involves careful thought and planning. To bring fish to market, local producers navigate a dynamic set of state and federal rules. I mean, I can imagine if we were all out there just uh, catching with absolutely no regulations, no size limits, no um, amounts of what we could catch, then we would be destroying the ocean, you know? But we all have our part in what we do to keep everything sustainable. Take, for instance, one local delicacy, sweet, flavorful razor clams. To sell them, Bell Bowie needs the correct license. Razor clams. We're the only ones in the state of Oregon that can process razor clams. The diggers Terry buys from need the correct licenses. You have to have a human consumption license. You, you can't have a sport license. You've got to have all the proper paperwork. And the digging has to take place on the clams calendar. We have about a dozen commercial diggers that dig for us when the season's open. Currently it's closed because of the spawning of the clams till October 1st and it'll reopen all the way over to July 14th again. Species-specific measures like these are standard. They foster a balance between food harvesting and ocean health. Amber wonders if outsiders to the industry understand the extent and the rigor of environmental regulations. I don't know who they think writes these rules. It isn't just some redneck sitting in a hut. It's biologists, it's uh, scientists, it's people that know this stuff that set us up with it, you know, and tell you when you can keep a species in check. Like Amber, Laura is protective of commercial fishing. She's not only a restaurant owner, she's also studied ocean science at the graduate level. And I get really defensive when I hear too much uneducated ramblings about how the oceans are all dead and all the fisheries are overfished and how we should stop all of these activities. And I am one of the more aware people that I know about these issues and I just don't believe that that's true. 
The future of local seafood in Oregon depends on balancing environmental and market imperatives, a task made all the more difficult during a global pandemic. But Laura thinks the past offers a powerful model of how to move forward. Look at our Dungeness crab fishery. We've been fishing it the same way for over 100 years. And the crab keep coming back year after year. All of these fishing families out here that we work with have children that they want to see be able to continue into the future feeding people and harvesting, whether they just like the harvesting part or whether they really, you know, realize that this is about food security for a lot of us in a lot of ways and it's a very healthy way to feed the planet. I think about all of that and I have a lot of pride in it and I feel privileged to be born into this and I want to see that continue. This story by producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell features the voices of Oregon-based commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. We were deeply saddened to learn that Amber Novelli, who you just heard in this story, and her husband, Kyle Novelli, lost their lives in a fishing accident on June 29, 2020. Since this loss, Amber and Kyle's family have worked to keep operating Novelli's Crab and Seafood. Those wishing to support the family during this difficult time can find out how at eartheats.org. That's it for the show this week, the last show of the year. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in 2021. Take care. The Earth Eats team includes Ayabon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Carl Ibsen, Rahul Srivastav, Aaron Carmen Sweeney, Eric Pearson, and Joe O'Connell. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.